Hey guys, welcome to Veritas tonight. Good to see everybody here despite the cold and rainy torrential downpour going on uh, outside. It's a company a few years ago called Theranos. And Theranos was a company that was set apart from the rest. Their CEO was a woman named Elizabeth Holmes, and she was the star of Silicon Valley in the early 2000s. See, she dropped out of Stanford in 2003 to start this company, and it was built around a new blood testing technology. You see, common blood testing labs at the time, they needed several vials of blood to run these complex blood tests required by doctors and hospitals across the country, but Theranos was different. They stood out from the rest because they discovered a way to run all of those complex tests with only one drop of blood through a quick and easy prick of the finger. It's on the screen behind me there. You see her with this little vial of blood. There were no more painful needle sticks, no more searching around for veins. If you've given blood at Greek week, you know what that's like. They claimed the accuracy of the tests was just as, if not more accurate than the rest of those other blood tests. Moreover, Theranos, they promised that these test results could be sent to labs across the country thanks to these blood readers. And they're on the screen behind me. Once you placed that blood in this reader, there was a data signal that was extracted and beamed wirelessly to a server across the country that will be able to analyze that sample and then beam back the result right then. Isn't that amazing? This company it was so promising, they raised an unprecedented amount of money, upwards of $9 billion at its height. Theranos attracted an impressive board of directors, entered into contracts with major companies like Walgreens and CVS and Safeway. And these, these companies, they spent hundreds of millions of dollars building state-of-the-art, modern, and comfortable blood testing centers in multiple stores. All of them were anticipating the day that this technology would drop, would be made available to the public so people could come to their stores and, and get these tests done. Even the U.S. military was starting to show interest in this blood technology to use live in the field, so to speak. Elizabeth Holmes is on the cover of Forbes magazine and Inc. It's on uh, behind me. She was touted as the next Steve Jobs, and she was named America's self, America's richest self-made woman. But there's only one problem with Theranos. It was all fake. It was all. Fake. You see, Theranos claimed to stand out from the rest. They claimed to have something that had never been seen and that was going to revolutionize the world. But upon further inspection, it was all fake. <clears throat> you see, in the public eye, things looked promising on the outside and up front. But behind closed doors, there was another story going on. You see, in the company, there was an extremely high employee turnover rate, and anybody who was fired was required to sign a non-disclosure act, which is a little bit shady, a little bit, a little bit weird. Some, some of the investors, they began questioning the viability of this blood technology after the store openings continued to be delayed. They say, oh, we're going to drop this date. Nope, we had to push it a few months back, work out some of the kinks over and over again. Rumors started to spread throughout the company about the falsification of data results, the stealing of other companies' patented technology, multiple violations of state and federal laws concerning the blood testing labs, specifically them not being up to code. 
Interestingly, there's a, a blood pathologist right here in Colombia that began the process of, of airing this dirty laundry of Theranos, so to speak, began opening the door of what was really going on behind the scenes. And, and so much so that in the spring of 2016, state and federal authorities, they raided Theranos headquarters and seized thousands of documents and countless hard drives. And upon further inspection, turned out it was all fake. You see, specifically, they found out that one drop of blood, there wasn't nearly enough blood to perform all of the tests that they were claiming. Theranos knew that, and yet they said something different up front. Moreover, because there was so little blood, the accuracy of those tests, they were compromised, and Theranos was falsifying those reports. Several people, when they did these blood tests, they received alarming, but ultimately false reports of having all sorts of rare blood disorders. And those blood readers that we talked about, that was complete bogus. They were not able to transfer, transfer any sort of signal. And so what Theranos would do instead is they would transport the blood samples across the country to their facility in Silicon Valley, which was well below legal safety and cleanliness standards for a lab. It's such a disappointing and yet unsurprising end to what was once a promising story. I tell that story because in a similar way, the people of God have been called to be set apart. If you're a Christian, we have been called to be different from the rest. 1 Peter 1 verse 15, but just as he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. That's the calling. And yet, just like Theranos, sometimes the things that, that God's people claim in public, up front, they don't match up with what's going on behind closed doors. Sometimes there's a different story. Sometimes things aren't what they seem in and among the lives of, of Christians. You see, we're called to be set apart, to be different from the rest. And then it, sometimes it turns out, though, that we're faking it. What if, what if those, those authorities, what if they took a closer look at our lives? What if they got a warrant to see the offices of our public life? What if they secured the hard drives of our private lives and they closely examined the things that we did or the things that we didn't do, the things that we thought when nobody was looking? What, what would they find in your life? What would they find behind closed doors? Would they find out that you actually love Jesus? That you actually have a desire to want to love Jesus? To want to live for his kingdom in all areas of your life? Or, or would it be just like Theranos? Would they find out that you're faking it? Just another disappointing yet unsurprising end of someone saying one thing in public, but doing another thing in private. We're about halfway through a series here at Veritas through the small New Testament book of 1 Peter. I say a book, but it's, it's really a letter written by one of Jesus' closest disciples, Peter. And Peter is writing from the ancient city of Rome to Christians who've been exiled from their home and find themselves in a foreign land. They're not home. And just like them, many of us today, all of us today, in some sense, we're not home. And so in our verses tonight, Peter is warning these Christians and he's warning us today about something that's going to bring the whole company down, so to speak. And that's the fact that we're faking it. Let's go back to those verses that we read earlier. 1 Peter 1, 15 and verse 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. 
for it's written, be holy because I am holy. You see, that word holy, the heart of it means to be set apart, to be different and distinct from other people around us, around them. In other words, what this is saying is we are supposed to be like God. We're supposed to be like God. If you look back at the verse, it says, just as he who called you is holy. God is holy. God is set apart. He is the moral standards of all that is good in the world. He's just and righteous and merciful and gracious. And so to be a Christian, to be a part of a community, wanting to be faithful to God means that we are committing our lives to try and be like God. Not perfectly, not instantly. Both of those are impossible in this life. But rather, being holy, being like God, it's a process. It's a two steps forward, one step back kind of life. You know, some seasons are filled with lots of growth. Uh, other seasons are a little bit slower. But over time, by God's grace and his power, we're called to be holy, to be set apart just like him. But that, of course, begs the question, how do we know? How, how do we know if we're being holy in a way that God wants? Not the way that maybe our intuition tells us we should be holy. Not the way that maybe our culture tells us that we should be holy, but the way that the God of the Bible tells us to be holy. What are those tests? Have you ever been somewhere where you didn't know the rules or the customs or the norms? How many of you are going on the Jamaica trip this spring break? How many of you in this room have, have actually been to Jamaica before? Yeah, good. So most of you, you know, I've, I've been several trips. Uh, if you, you've been, then you know you have to bring 50 pounds of supplies to, to donate to the Jamaican people, and you've got to shove them into all your very aesthetically pleasing bags and, and take them through the airport. And when you get down to the Jamaican, uh, when you get down to Jamaica and you go through customs, you're going to come face-to-face with a very nice but sometimes very grumpy travel agent. They've been seeing thousands of people. That's their job, right? And that nice, grumpy agent, they're going to ask you, two questions. Why are you here? And what are in your bags? Now, on my first trip many, many, many years ago, the communication process about what to say to these nice grumpy agents, they're not all grumpy, I should be that mean. Anyway, uh, what you tried to say to these customs agents, it wasn't as clear among the team as to what to say as it is today. Moreover, the the Harmony House and one by one, the ministry that we work with, it wasn't as well known by the government back then. And so, when, when I was asked on this trip, why are you coming to Jamaica? Me being the naive dope that I am, I kind of panicked and I said, oh, well, I'm on a mission trip to Jamaica. <laughs> the, guy, the agent just kind of opened his mouth like, dude, did you really just say that to me? Then he went and he asked, hey, what are in your bags? And I, again, freaked out. I'm like, ah, we got clothes and we got food and we got shoes. And we got medicine. We're going to help the people who need to be helped in this country. He just shook his head, called an armed guard over, told me to go with him, take my bags with him. I'm freaking out. I'm thinking I'm going to die. The trip's over. Everything's ruined. Everything was fine. All they did was just wanted to look through my bags to see what I had. And uh, the, the blunder ended up costing the team a couple hundred bucks because I had to pay taxes and all those imports. It's fine. If you're going to Jamaica for your first time, don't blow it. But no, I'm just kidding. You're going to be fine. The leaders are going to tell you what to say. It's going to work out. What's the point? I needed to know the rules. I needed to know what to say. I had to be taught that. And in the exact same way, we need rules. We need tests. We need signs that help us know if if we're being holy in all our conduct in a way that is pleasing to God as opposed to faking it. 
And so in our verses tonight, Peter gives us three signs that let us know whether or not we're faking it. First sign, we are faking it if we are conforming to our passions. Verse 14 of chapter 1 in 1 Peter, As obedient children, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance. That phrase, passions of your former ignorance, it, it just means that these are the desires that we have of things that God has explicitly forbidden in the Bible. Or these desires can also be inordinate cravings or, or lusts for something that is a good gift of God. We're, we're talking about desires, these unrestrained impulses to sin. Danish, Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, he calls people who do conform to these passions unapologetically aesthetes. It's kind of a weird word, but a better explanation. Here's a quote on the screen. The aesthete doesn't really ask whether something is good or bad, but only whether it is interesting. Everything is judged as to whether it's fascinating, thrilling, exciting, and entertaining. The person living the aesthetic life isn't master of himself at all. In fact, he's leading an accidental life. His temperament, tastes, feelings, and impulses completely drive him. Do you know people like this? Do you see this tendency in your own life, in your own heart? You see, experiencing these passions, these desires, that's not wrong. That's not the issue. Here's the issue. What do you do with those? Now, once you become a Christian, if you are a Christian, you know this, these desires, they never go away. In fact, over the course of your life and in certain seasons, they actually might get stronger. Galatians 5, 17 talks about this dynamic. It says, <clears throat> for the flesh, <clears throat> excuse me, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. And yet... We've got a choice. See, by God's grace and power, we've got a say in the matter on whether we're going to conform to those passions or not. Imagine this. Imagine you're floating along in a river with a pretty strong current being carried downstream. Now, imagine standing up in that current. You're going to feel some, some pressure, right? Now, imagine trying to walk upstream against that current. It's going to be even more difficult. You see, when God calls us, when God calls his people to be holy, he's commanding us to stand up in that current and to walk upstream. Now, let's take this a little bit further. Imagine you're floating along in the stream, ho-hum, everything's fine, and all of a sudden you see somebody standing up. You're thinking, what, what is going on? What are they doing? And then they start walking upstream. Why are they doing that? You see, that person, that's standing out. They are standing out. They're set apart from you. They are holy in that sense. And you have taken notice. Guess what? That's the design. That's what God has in mind. And so what ways are you giving yourself over to your passions and to your desires? Where in your life are you content to go along with the current of that river? Does your life look the same as everybody else's? How do you spend your free time? What do you watch on Netflix, on Hulu? How do you spend your money? What's your relationship with your girlfriend or your boyfriend look like? How often do you read your Bible and pray by yourself? How often are you separated from your phone? You know, standing up in that current, walking upstream, it might, be, might mean using that free time to serve other people in some way. 
It might mean saying no to certain shows because the content of that show is hardening you. You're seeing things and experiencing things that are not leading you to holiness. Maybe it means showing self-control in that relationship, not experimenting sexually like everyone else seems to be doing. It might mean cultivating spiritual disciplines like reading the Bible and praying, making that the normal part of your life rather than the exception. You see, we're faking it if we are conforming to the passions of our former ignorance. Second sign, we know we're faking it if we're living for empty things. If we're living for empty things. Verse 18 For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you. This verse, it implies that before this church, before these group of people became Christian, they were living an empty way of life. There's another translation that says that they were living in a futile way. In other words, they're living useless and pointless Lives. The things that they did, they thought that they mattered to them, but as they stood back, as they thought about it a little bit more, they didn't really matter. You see, they were committing their heart and their soul, their time and their talent, their blood, sweat, and tears to something that ultimately didn't matter. See, when Peter's writing this, he's most likely appealing to two different groups of people in the church. First were those people with a Jewish background. Now, if you came from a Jewish background, then you knew that this empty way of life, you heard that and you knew it was most likely a reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system. You see, in the Old Testament, the way that things were set up was that you would sacrifice an animal in order to remove the sin, in order to remove your uncleanliness to get back into a right standing with God. That was the plan in the Old Testament era. But here's the deal. Those sacrifices in and of themselves were never sufficient to take away the problem of sin ultimately. The New Testament book of Hebrews in chapter 10 tells us this, as it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again, and he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. See, if you were Jewish back in the first century and you still held to the Old Testament sacrificial system after Jesus came, after he died, after he rose and said that I was the fulfillment of that system, you don't need to do it anymore, then guess what? Then you were still living a futile way of life, an empty way of life that had no meaning and had no purpose. Why? Because you were still living in your sins. To rely on the blood of that bull or that goat, it was an empty and pointless reliance because it couldn't really cleanse you from your sins. That second group that Peter had in mind were Gentiles. That's just people who had more of a pagan, a polytheistic background. If you were a Gentile, it meant you worshipped multiple gods. The prophet Isaiah, in a passage in his Old Testament book, comments on why they do this and what it's like to worship these multiple gods. It says this, starting in verse 9 of chapter 44, All who make idols are nothing. And the things they treasure are worthless. When, when, when they make these idols, verse 16, he cuts down the cedars or perhaps takes a cypress or oak. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I see the fire. Verse 17, but from the rest he makes a god, his idol. 
He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me, you're my God. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. Two different groups, Jewish, Gentile, same exact result. Futility, emptiness. What are the empty ways of life you find yourselves stuck in? What are the things that you're drawn to that if you're, if you're thinking about them rightly, if you really think about it, take a step back, ultimately they're pointless. They don't really matter. Are you living an empty religious life like the Jewish people? You know, you think the way to respond to your sin when you, when you realize you've sinned, you've got to try harder. You've got to get more intentional. Double the prayer time. Triple the Bible reading time. Rather than reading one chapter a day, we're going to read three a day. Only then, then when I do that, God's going to be pleased. Or maybe you think God's going to be more pleased with you when you start serving somewhere. Or maybe you think God is punishing you because you've got some unconfessed sin in your life, or at least you think so, and so you need to separate and isolate and confess and inquire until you've got it figured out and end, and only then will you get relief from God. Then you can become back, you can become a real person of God, again, back in His good graces. If that's you, that's futile. It's empty, it's pointless, because you can never be good enough for God. Or maybe it's not a religious life. Maybe you're living the exact opposite. You're living a rebellious life. You want to live it up. You only live once, so you're going to get all out of life that you can today because you can't be guaranteed tomorrow. And so you're seeking pleasures in the drugs, the alcohol, the girls, the hookup culture, the parties, the pornography, whatever it is. Or maybe it's how you attempt to relieve stress. The hours, and I mean hours of video games you play every day the hours of exercising, the hours of online shopping, the hours spent on social media, trying to get more followers, crafting that post, trying to get that perfect selfie, get all the filters right. You spend hours doing that, but guess what? It's all futile. It's all pointless. That rebellious life will leave you wanting more. That religious life will exhaust you. Those stress relievers are band-aids on bullet holes. If we're running headlong into these empty and futile ways of life, then it's a sign that we might be faking it rather than trying to be holy in all our conduct. Final sign that lets us know if we're faking it is we are not conducting ourselves with fear. Verse 17 in 1 Peter 1, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. A couple days ago, we had a small group at our house, and there was a couple were talking about parenting, and for the longest time, they could not get their three-year-old to stay in bed after they put her down. So they'd be cooking in the kitchen, they they look over, and oh my gosh, she's just standing there creepily in the kitchen. Good gosh, go back to bed, give me that knife. Just kidding, she didn't have a knife, right? But it'd be freaky, right? And so finally, after months of this, she came out again, and the dad's like, that's it. I'm done. So what he decided to do is he put her back in a room and he crouched right outside the door. And right when that door just opened up a little bit, ah! <laughs> I gotcha, sorry. No, he, he scared her so bad. She ran back to the bed. Here's the deal. She never came out of her room again. Oh my gosh, that was such a good story. I said, teach me your ways. I can't wait to try that on my kids one day. Anyway, I, I say that because 
That is not the kind of fear that God expects us to conduct ourselves with in this life. That is terror, not reverent fear. Instead, that word reverent fear has the sense of awe and awareness of the power and the majesty and the glory of God, the realization that he has the power. He's in the driver's seat in life and he can do whatever he wants. You see, this kind of fear is healthy and is needed if we want to know who God is according to the Bible, not according to our intuition, not according to what our culture says, but according to the Bible. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We need this kind of fear of God. If you didn't know, one of the uh, more interesting parts of my story, we'll say, is that I did Taekwondo for 11 years of my life. Anybody else do that? I know Sydney, yeah, we're there. Anybody else? No? Maybe you're a little too embarrassed. That's fine. I get it. We'll, uh, we'll talk later. Uh, but, but in Taekwondo, at least in mine, uh, way, the way that you knew where you stood in relation to others was by this system of belts, right? You started with a white belt, go to yellow belt, all the way up to black belt. And then you can go the further degrees past black belt. And the way that you progressed up through the ranks, so to speak, was that every few months you'd be tested on everything you were learning from the forms to these uh, self-defense moves to breaking boards, right? Now, most of the classes were spent practicing these things over and over and over and over until at last you arrived at test day. And a test day was a big deal because it meant that the grand master would come in to judge Everybody. Now, the Grand Master in our school was a guy named Grand Master Rowe. This dude was five foot nothing, and he could kill you with a look. It was amazing. I, I don't know if it really did, but, you know, there's a picture of him behind me. He's there on the left. Yeah, I'm a little bit further over on the right. You probably can't even find me because I look a little different. Anyway, Grand Master Rowe was a ninth degree black belt. Now, here's the deal. When he walked into the room, everybody stood a little straighter. We kicked and we punched a little harder. We did our forms a little more precise. Why? Well, because we feared him. We revered him. The Grand Master was in our presence, and we were all trying to prove ourselves before him by doing our best. You see, this fear didn't make us run away from him in terror. It didn't make us paralyzed or cower when he looked at us. No, it was just the opposite. This fear brought out the best in us and helped each of us feel the weight of what was at stake in the test and yet want to do our best. In a similar way, God is judging his people on the conduct of their lives, on the conduct of our lives. He's evaluating our thoughts and our motives and our actions to see if they measure up to his standards. He's sitting at that head table. And so to not conduct ourselves with fear in this life, this is a, a failure to realize what is at stake. Judgment. Look back at the beginning of the verse in verse 17. It says, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, that is, fairly. Now, this is just a little bit of a, a rabbit trail, but I think it's worth exploring for a minute. Some of you might be objecting to the fact that God would, would judge anyone. You know, maybe your intuition, it just that's not who God is to you. Why would he judge someone? Maybe that's what you're hearing from the culture. God is all loving, all patient, all merciful. Now, here's the deal. Of course, he is loving and he is merciful, and he is gracious. But that does not come at the expense of his justice, of his judgment. See, it's a mistake to assume that love and judgment are exclusive. 
Could you imagine a world in which there was no judgment? I mean, imagine if you walked into your room and you saw the person that you loved most being physically assaulted by someone. You, right then and there, you know that that's not right and that person needs to pay for the hurt and the pain that they are inflicting on that person you love. They need to be judged. Could you imagine if men like Matt Lauer, Harvey Weinstein, and others who have abused their power and done awful and terrible things to women and others, imagine if they didn't get judged for those actions. If there was no judgment in the world, it would mean that all the racist acts committed by people over the years, from Hitler's desire to exterminate the entire Jewish race, to Dylan Roof's murder of nine African Americans in that Charleston church, to the thousands of lynchings of African Americans at the hand of white mobs, all of those acts would go unpunished, unjudged. Is that what we want? No, no, we all understand that in a world where atrocities and crimes like these are committed, fair and righteous and impartial judgment is needed. And guess what? That is exactly the kind of judgment that God gives. Now, of course, those examples I listed, those are examples of gross and unchecked sin, but God hates any sin, all sin, no matter how big or small it seems to us, no matter if we see it in the world or if it's there in our hearts. Any and all sin is going to be judged by God. And so to get back to the issue at hand, one of those things that God is going to judge is a failure to conduct ourselves with a reverent fear in our lives. What, is, what does this mean to fail to conduct ourselves with fear? Well, it would be like me, go back to the illustration of the, me taking the Taekwondo test. It'd be like if I'm kind of slacking off during my test, just kind of hit home, yeah, we're here, blah. kind of going through the motions, cutting corners, not taking things seriously all the while. The Grandmaster Roe, he's sitting there and judging me and seeing that. Failing our, to conduct ourselves with fear means only contemplating and only thinking about our lives on a horizontal plane, only thinking about the implications of our decisions without giving any thought to the vertical plane. It's evaluating decisions and choices and priorities without thinking, how's this going to affect the vertical plane? How's this going to affect God? And so when we choose our major just on the horizontal plane, How's this going to affect me? When we make the choice of who to live with next year, who's cool? Who's going to bolster my reputation? Who do I not want to live with? If we treat people with our words, only consider how that's going to affect them on a horizontal plane or approach even our academic lives, just going through the motions with the class, yeah, whatever. Uh, is everybody cheating on this test? Doesn't matter. That's fine. I'll do it. Look, it's not wrong to consider the horizontal plane. We have to do that. But if we do that at the exclusion of the vertical plane, we're missing it. We see, we need to remember that God the Father is sitting at that head table. He's judging us. And so to conduct ourselves with fear, that means that we consider how that internship is going to affect my personal relationship with God. Is there going to be enough time for me to read my Bible, to pray, to be surrounded with a community of Christians? To consider or to conduct ourselves with fear means to ask how that full-time job is going to further God's kingdom. Am I going to go into a field that's going to make a difference in people's lives, that's going to be pleasing to God or not? It means evaluating that the way that we use our words in person and especially online, are they life-giving? Are they building people up or are they tearing people down? Would we say this thing we're about to say online to that person's face? If we knew God was sitting at the head table and judging us during that test, how would that change how we spent our Thursday through Saturday night? How would that change how we spend our free time, what we look at on our phones before we go to bed? 
See, we are faking it if we fail to conduct our lives in reverent fear. To be a holy people, a set-apart people, means that we conduct ourselves with fear in every area of our life. So how do we not fake it? Put positively, how do we live this holy life, this set-apart life, the life that is conforming more and more to God's image, a life that's consistent, a life that if those authorities looked into it, it wouldn't end in scandal, it wouldn't end in disappointment, but instead our lives would be exonerated and declared genuine. We are who we claim to be in public and in private. How do we do that? Two ways. First, we look to the past. Verse 18 You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you. That word redeemed, it was a a commercial term for the liberation of a slave or a a wartime captive by the payment of a price. And Peter says that we've been bought back. But how? With what? Well, verse goes on into verse 19. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. We weren't redeemed with those things, but we were redeemed with what? With the precious blood of God. Of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. A scholar, I like how they said it, put it this way, the readers were caught with no possibility of escape in a futile way of life that would end in condemnation from the judge who judges everybody according to their works. However, Christ's self-offering to God as sacrifice constituted their ransom price by which they were set free. And so what this means is that when we look to the past, we remember what happened on our behalf 2,000 years ago. You see, Jesus, the God of the universe, he shed his precious blood on that cross. He didn't have to, but he wanted to. He could have come down anytime he wanted, but he didn't. He stayed there. Why? To redeem us, to buy us back, buy his people back. And this matters. It matters today, right? Because when we look to the past, we're reminded of where we stand in the present. We're not in bondage and slavery to sin, but instead we're alive. We have a choice in the matter. We can stand up in that current. We can walk upstream because we have been redeemed through the precious precious blood of Christ. So the power to be holy from looking to the past, but that power also comes from looking to the future. Verse 13, chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That revelation of Jesus Christ, that's just a reference to when Jesus returns. Quickly here, Acts chapter 1. Jesus is risen from the dead, right? And he's giving his very last words to the disciples. And then this happens. This is crazy. Verse 9 of chapter 1. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Can you imagine there? You're looking to see Jesus rise up. He, he gone. Why did he go? Verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Oh, my God. What? What are you doing here? Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven, he will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back down out of those clouds. And when he does come back, there's going to be grace waiting for his people. He's going to have grace to give us. You see, for God's people to be a Christian is to know that the best is yet to come. It's to know that there are more and more blessings in store for us than we presently experience now. And so one of the incentives for living a holy life should be that sense of anticipation of what is coming for us. Do you see why this makes a difference? You see, this helps us, this makes a difference because it helps us forego lesser pleasures because we know there's a better pleasure tomorrow. Uh, Think about it. 
Being a holy and a set-apart people here and now is hard. It's difficult. If you don't think it's hard to be a Christian, then I'm sorry, but you're missing it. It takes a lot of effort to stand up in that river, to walk up a, upstream against that current, conforming every aspect to our lives in a way that is pleasing to God and looks like God individually and together in a community. It's hard, and sometimes it downright sucks. And so why is it worth it to keep going? Why shouldn't we fake it? Because a better pleasure is coming. If I told you that you could have a hundred bucks today or a million dollars at the end of the month, which would you choose? Well, think about it, right? A hundred bucks today, that could, that could get you a lot. It gets you a couple meals, maybe guys, you take your lady friend out to CC's, uh, the steakhouse, not the pizza place, although if you want to do the pizza place, that's fine. <laughs> get enough uh, pizza for a month, right? Or with a hundred bucks, maybe get that outfit that you wanted. You know, a hundred dollars, that's not chump change. What would have to happen to make you pass it up? How about a million bucks at the end of the month? Duh, no question. But here's the deal. You want to get that million dollars for that month, you're going to have to button down the hatches for a while. You're going to have to have some self-control. You're going to have to be eating 99 cent ramen all month while your friends are at a steakhouse or at a pizza place. You're going to have to be okay with the one who doesn't have the the new outfit to the formal or to that party. I don't know, whatever it is, right? You might have to walk around for a little bit because you can't afford gas in your car, but that's okay because you know something better is coming. If we apply this principle to Jesus' teachings, you know, it might mean you're going to have to say no to a relationship with somebody who isn't a Christian. Might, saying, might be saying no to that third beer because you know that's the point at which you're going to get drunk. You might have to say no to clicking that search icon uh, at the bottom of Instagram before you go to bed because you know you're going to start scrolling through things and go to places that you don't want to go when you're thinking rightly. You might say no to the better paying job because it's not going to leave you any time to be involved in a Christian community, in a local church. You see, what we believe about the future That determines how we live in the present. And so to be holy in all our conducts means that we say no to lesser pleasures today because we know there's a better pleasure coming tomorrow. It's Jesus. And so we end where we began. 1 Peter 1, verse 15. Just as he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all you do. Be holy. Don't fake it. Stand up in that river because you've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Walk upstream because you know that a future grace, a better pleasure awaits you tomorrow. As the music team comes up, I want you guys to go ahead and put your phones down. Put down the pen. Close the journal. Close your eyes and just spend some time talking to God for a minute. I want you to tell him all the ways that you're faking it or you find yourself drawn to faking it? How are you conforming to your passions? What are those empty ways of life that you're committing yourself to? Where are you failing to live in reverent fear of God? Tell him those things. Ask him to bring to your mind in in a fresh way what's been done for you, what's been done for us in the past. We've been redeemed. Ask him to help you believe with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength the fact that a better pleasure awaits. Jesus is coming. 
Ask him to give you a longing for that. Father, we confess to you that we, sometimes we fake it. We say one thing in public and yet we do another thing behind closed doors. If we keep that up, that's going to bring the company down. It's not what we want. It's not what you want. And so we confess that. Father, would what happened for us in the past through Jesus and what awaits us in the future, his return, would that move us to want to be holy today in the present? Amen.